Okay, how's that look? Yeah, that one, that's okay. Um, Robert, yeah. say something into that one. Hello? All Good right, morning. that works. Okay, I'm happy. Good morning. <laughs> Got a little smaller crowd than usual today, but uh, it's because it's Christmas, I'm sure. I got up not feeling too good, so you might want to just stay away from me. <laughs> yeah. I told Diane, oh, I want to crawl back into bed. Got up at 5.30 and I'm going, oh, I'm sore throat and not feeling good. <clears throat> but we're going to gut it out here. Let me get my notes. That's Luke. I even remembered my big Bible. Okay, Luke, uh, first, 2 Corinthians 1.15. Let's begin before we study that and ask the Lord's blessing on our Sunday. Dear Lord, thank You for uh, another Sunday that we could come together with the family of God and to lift up our hearts to You, to pray for one another, to look into the Scriptures together, to seek You. And we pray that You would encourage us and teach us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Okay, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 15. And um, That's right, I had a big thing I was going to read. Part of the task of interpreting Corinthians, trying to read between the lines, because there was a letter that Paul talked about, this so-called sorrowful letter, and there was some interchange and issues between Paul and the Corinthian church that happened and that we don't have. Okay, So in 1 Corinthians, you get some ideas that there were some problems. And then in 2 Corinthians... We, we get some ideas, and then he talks about that letter he sent that we don't have. So we have to try to reconstruct the events to understand what the issues are that Paul's talking about. So I found some material that kind of does that for us, and I, I give you some of this before, but let me just read this. Normally I'm not going to just sit and read a bunch of stuff, but this is easier than me trying to memorize what all was going on, Okay. And I'll probably forget this, some of these details, but just so you get a big picture because there's a con- some kind of conflict between Paul and the Corinthian church. <clears throat> this is from a, a scholar by the name of Garland. Paul's charges, changes in his travel plans have cast suspicions on his sincerity. So he tries to lay the matter to rest in these verses. In 1 Corinthians 16, 5 through 9, He told them that he would come to them after he went through Macedonia and perhaps even spend the winter. He specifically says that he did not want to make only a passing visit, but wanted to spend time with them. Because a great door for effective work had opened for him in Ephesus, he intended to stay there until Pentecost. He does not qualify his own announced plans by saying, if the Lord permits. Or he does qualify his own announced plans, if the Lord permits. 1 Corinthians 16.7 By the way, those things are interesting uh, in, a, in the scheme of God's will. We're writing a series of articles on this, on what God's will is. And I am refuting the idea that there's some secret will of God out there that you have to learn. 
uh, in order to be successful. I believe that God's will is either what is. I believe there's a secret will of God. I just don't believe we can learn it. It's it's unveiled as as providence is ruling over God through providence is ruling as history unveils. We find out God's secret will, but we don't find it out ahead of time. Now Paul obviously didn't have access to everything that was going to happen in the future. And so when he said that he would like to come, he said, if the Lord permits. Well, it turns out he didn't. So Paul just didn't have that information. All right, back to my thing here. As for the collection for the saints in Judea, he told them to put aside something every week and save whatever extra they earn so that he need not take an offering when he comes. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-3. He apparently did not plan to go to Jerusalem himself since he tells the Corinthians that he will send letters of recommendation for any whom they approve to take the gift. 1 Corinthians 16.3 He then writes that he expects them to send him on his way wherever I go. 1 Corinthians 16.6 Meanwhile, Paul sent Timothy to visit them. If the verb in 1 Corinthians 4.17 is an epistolatory aorist, um, okay, um, which is most likely, probably meaning that it's plural, but it's it's, you know, actually only talking about Timothy, which is most likely then Timothy delivered one Corinthians. Paul's interesting request, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you. Let no one treat him with contempt. 1 Corinthians 16, 10 through 11. Um, uh, the NIV says, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you. Suggests that he had some forebodings about the reception of him. For some unknown reason, Paul modified his original plan and made a crisis visit to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, 15 and 16. Perhaps he had received news from Timothy, who had since returned to Ephesus, that the situation had taken a turn for a worse. This emergency visit was cut short because of some painful confrontation. The super apostles, that's the false ones in Corinth, may already have begun their meddling in the church, but the defining event was the abuse poured upon him by someone in the congregation and less likely from someone outside. His pain was intensified when the church either supported this individual or stood by silently and did not come to his defense. Uh, 2, 5, 7, 12. The dispute does not even seem to be over some theological deviation, but over some affront directed either at Paul's person, ministry style, attempted discipline, or all of above. Acts is silent about this painful visit and generally presents a congenial relationship between the Corinthian church and Paul. Paul's letters, however, clearly show that this relationship with the church had some rocky moments. This unpleasant event forced Paul to make a passing visit, something he said he wanted to avoid, 1 Corinthians 16, 7. Then Paul withdrew as suddenly as he appeared, vexed and humiliated, and he did not return. Sometimes... Retreating is better than staying and fighting. By withdrawing, Paul attempts to defuse an explosive situation and let things cool down. He apparently did not want to risk another rebuff and have his authority undermined any further. His visit to Corinth seems to have exasperated rather than corrected the problem, and he decided that a return visit so soon after his embarrassing showdown would do little good. Unlike some leaders who try to hide their insecurity behind a blustering facade that projects their mastery of everyone in every every situation, Paul is not afraid to let his frailty show. Um, 
Even now, in this letter, he is still apprehensive about returning to Corinth and openly shares his uneasiness with them. Quote, I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and not have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. 2 Corinthians 12.21 He confesses that he is not sure how to manage the situation since this person's posture toward him poisoned his relationship to the Corinthians. Paul wrote the sorrowful letter, Now Lost, 2 Corinthians 2, 1-4, and dispatched Titus, not Timothy, to deliver it, 1 Thessalonians 3, 1-3, rather than return himself to Corinth. Titus was an uncircumcised Greek, Galatians 2, 1-3, and may have been harder to intimidate than Timothy, or he may have possessed tougher skin and therefore was better suited to deal with stubborn opposition. The disaffected faction may have been only a small minority, but Paul wanted the t- to test the obedience of the entire congregation to see if they would take it upon themselves to discipline the individual. 2 Corinthians 2.9. All of this is gleaned from a whole bunch of material. That's why I try, I'm giving you this one story, rather than because uh, I don't think I could do a better job of pulling this all together from all over the New Testament. Okay? Since Paul had gone to Troas and did not find Titus there as he expected, he was too preoccupied to worry about what was happening in Corinth to take advantage of another open door for evangelism, 2 Corinthians 2, 12-13. Consequently, he headed on to Macedonia. The events in Corinth still burdened him, 2 Corinthians 7, 5, as he waited anxiously for Titus' status report, 2 Corinthians 2, 13-14. When Titus finally arrived in Macedonia, Paul rejoiced over the good news that confirmed his confidence in them. The sorrowful letter apparently released some of the tension by heightening it, that is, by confronting the issues directly, 2 Corinthians 7, 5, and 6. Paul, however, had not won over the whole church. Pockets of resistance existed. Perhaps members meeting in different house churches continued to oppose Paul and champion rival super-apostles. Nevertheless, matters had become sufficiently settled for Paul to plan to visit them again. 2 Corinthians was written to prepare for the next visit, see Acts 20. In verse 2, Paul sent Titus on ahead with his letter to solidify support for him and to stimulate their preparations for the collection. His return prompted this letter. So there is the background information gleaned from Acts, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Thessalonians, and other places to reconstruct one kind of a complex historical event. Now, what does that say? Well, Paul has a very tenuous relationship with this church, and he's defending himself. And so 2 Corinthians is a defense of Paul's personal ministry. But because it is that, we get a little insight into what uh, the apostle understood to be important about Christian ministry and how he uh, viewed the importance that they accepted his message Because what Paul, I believe, was worried about is if they rejected him as a person, the apostle of Jesus Christ, that they're also going to reject his message. And what was really important was the message. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the gospel that they considered foolish, but that Paul said was the power of God to salvation. Okay, So the real importance is that if he doesn't want to see them reject the message that he brought to them and listen to these false teachers that were arrogant and exalting one over against another. And we know that the key error in Corinth was 
their personality calls. One is Apollos and one's of Peter, and they're playing one off against the other, whereas Paul's saying there's one gospel, there's one truth, and we're all committed to it, and you're foolish to, to think this way. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 4, he says, don't go on passing judgment before the time, because the Lord will come who will try the motives of men's hearts. And so what they were trying to judge, falsely so, was who was the better Christian or who was the better apostle. They're trying to sort of rank people like they would in the sports world. And Paul says, don't do that. You cannot know this. It's impossible to know. We don't know who the better preacher is. We don't know who God's more pleased with because we don't know, see the heart. And we, we aren't capable of judging these things. But we can know what the truth is. All right, now, 2 Corinthians 1.15. Now, notice the confidence was a issue, this idea of boasting and confidence. I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Verse 12, our proud confidence. Uh, verse 14, your reason... Uh, that we are your reason to be proud or your, literally your confidence. Then verse 15, And in this confidence I intended at first to come to you that you might twice receive a blessing. Now, this passage is disputed because uh, what it literally says in the Greek is that, that you would receive another grace. The word isn't blessing in the, in the Greek, it's grace. So what would be a second grace? And so I read all kinds of material and people quoting theological journal articles on this. And the one that seems to have won the day amongst the scholars was an essay published in a theological journal by Gordon Fee. And Fee's conclusion was that Paul wasn't claiming he was going to impart a second grace to them but what he was going to do was to go there so that they might help him and that they, that there was grace to be found in their benefit to Paul and their giving. The second opportunity to bless Paul. And, and Fee bases that conclusion on 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And as I was reading this, I was reading all the possibilities. I thought, well, the word grace is used in 2 Corinthians for giving. Um, where's my Bible here? Let, let's just point that out. Okay, uh, second, in Second Corinthians, for example, eight. Um, look at Second Corinthians eight and see how Paul uses the word grace. He says, "Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia." that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. And this not as we expected, but first gave themselves to the Lord and us to, and then to us by the will of God. Consequently, we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would complete in you this gracious work as well. And then verse 7, gracious work. And then verse 9, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus, that though he is rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty, you through his poverty might become rich. So, uh, verse 19, uh, uh, 
but appointed to the churches to travel in this gracious work. So he uses the term grace over and over in 2 Corinthians 8, referring to the church's giving for this uh, contribution to the saints in Jerusalem. Paul was very motivated by this whole offering that he was gathering from the churches because um, he wanted to bring this money to bless the poor saints in Jerusalem that were have under dire circumstances. And it isn't just that Paul felt like he needed a lot of money, because it wasn't for him, it was for these saints in Jerusalem. But Paul's fear, and the thing that he fought the most, and he battled over, and he even called the Galatians, uh, he anathematized them basically over this, was that there would not end up being two churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. And two Gospels, a Jewish Gospel and a Gentile Gospel. He wanted, that in Ephesians, he said that the two might become one new man. He didn't want a division that, that could easily have developed because of the problem with the Jews and Gentiles becoming one in the church. Because the Jews had a lot of different ideas and customs. Okay, so Paul believed that this offering that he was gathering from the predominantly Gentile churches to go to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem would go a long way in bringing the unity of the gospel and and, and forestalling any possible split into two churches, a Jewish one and a Gentile one. Okay? So what he said to the Corinthians was when, when you gave, or he said, look at the Macedonians. They were in affliction and poverty and they gave. And that was a gracious work. So, interpreting our passage here in light of that, okay, we come to the conclusion that you might twice receive grace would mean a second opportunity to bless Paul by supporting his mission. I'm sorry I had to do all of that to get one point out. But sometimes that's the way biblical interpretation is. And 2 Corinthians is such as that you almost have to understand the whole issue for it makes sense of what's in these earlier chapters. And so, uh, I believe that the receiving a blessing was them blessing Paul. Yes. Because it's a, a fairly complex passage to actually understand what it does mean, even what people then take, it's the easiest kind of passages to take out of context and make it mean something that's very damaging so it's almost out of self-defense that you have to dig and understand because otherwise you're going to get abused by something that doesn't mean what it says. That's absolutely the case. And you know the most common scriptures to be used that way are First and Second Corinthians. Uh, I would say, uh, I mean, I don't know if I, I don't have a scientific way to say this, but just having seen for the, the pietist, elitist, second blessing teachers, almost all use Corinthians to teach exactly the opposite of what Corinthians is teaching. And the reason being is that Paul uses terminology that they're using to refute them, and people think that he's actually agreeing with them. And so, we, yeah, Keith's right that something like this second blessing here, second grace, you could create a doctrine out of that. And they do, but it, that's not what he's talking about. And Gordon Fee is one of the finest biblical scholars to have dealt with this material. His his commentary on 1 Corinthians is outstanding. And I would totally recommend that if you like buying commentaries, 
and you want one on 1 Corinthians, I would get Gordon Fee. It, it, it helped me because I was trying to understand this 20 years ago until I read his commentary. I was going to agree with you. I have yes. Fee's yeah. commentary on Corinthians was really the first time I could understand Corinthians and what it was saying straight up because it, 1 Corinthians especially has been used by Charismatics and the Pentecostals to make it say something that it wasn't. And what's interesting about Fee is that he is a Pentecostal. Exactly. He is an Assemblies of God. Yeah. He's coming from that that viewpoint, and he's probably one of the best scholars the Assemblies of God have ever fielded, and he's using uh, a very good biblical interpretation to understand Corinthians yes. in a way that's inconsistent with what a lot of Assemblies people have used it for. Yes, I, I agree fully. that uh, He is a non-cessationist. He believes in the gifts, but he believes that the doctrines have been misused over the years to create sort of an elitist, hyper-pious, hyper-spiritual idea uh, that doesn't really exist. For example, it says uh, the spiritual man, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, but the spiritual man knows all things. Well, the way that's traditionally been interpreted was that that's two kinds of Christians. right? The ordinary Christians and then the super-spiritual Christians that have some secret that all the regular Christians don't know. And, of course, everybody who believes that puts themselves in the better category. You know, uh, <laughs> I'm one of the spiritual ones. I, I've yet to seen one of these elitist doctrines where the guy preaching it put himself in the lower category. <laughs> but yeah, there are these great super Christians, way better than everybody else. Unfortunately, I'm not one of them. That might be somewhat believable, but it's, you don't ever hear that. But fee, what Fee does is he pulls the rug out from under that interpretation. The natural man that doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God is the unconverted. Not some Christian that didn't know the secret because he didn't go to the right convention. or to the right. We were looking at a website. This guy has a school of the Spirit. In, in Minneapolis. Yeah. yeah, you can go to a school of the Spirit so you learn how to hear God's voice and see what the Spirit's really saying. But that kind of thing comes out of a misuse. Because out of misuse of Corinthians, yeah. All right, so this second grace here wasn't some super experience that most people don't have, but was the second chance to bless Paul by giving to his mission of helping the saints in Jerusalem. All right. So um, I wanted to, that one passage that he was talking about. Diane, could you look up one Corinthians sixteen five through nine? Garland was uh, explaining that as part of the historical background. So the basic point is Paul changed his travel plans. Brian, we were, we were just talking about something from Corinthians that it confirms what we've been talking about. We had a talk to you about that extra will of God that people are looking for. Paul, Paul says, if the Lord wills, when he, when he said that I plan to go to Corinth, because he didn't know. So if Paul didn't know, we probably don't either. It seems to be the trend is, is trying to, to divine God's will in everything. And really what happens is you become a slave trying to figure out what does God want me to do. And when, when you realize that that's not worth trying to do, you are free to make decisions on your own. Yeah. Worrying about everything that you do. Brian and I are reading a book about, was it Decision Making God's Way? Is that the name? Very good. Yeah, he was also kind of unpacking some stuff for Corinthians. Okay, go ahead and read that passage. Five through nine. Yeah. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. 
and perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter, that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Okay, if the Lord permits. Notice the caveat. Remember he said to the Thessalonians that I tried to come to you, but Satan thwarted me or hindered me? So why didn't he just go to the seminar where you learn how to rebuke Satan and get done with this problem? <laughs> well, they, they hadn't invented that seminar yet. <laughs> All right. So, um, Paul's... Now, what happened, though, was that the, he has these people in Corinth, some anyhow, who are trying to find something wrong with Paul any way they can. So when he said, I plan to come, and then he didn't come... They were interpreting that as him being double-minded or uh, being guilty of duplicity or insincere or something like that. And so this section, Paul is defending himself against that charge of duplicity. Now he says in verse 16, that is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you, by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. There's more contextual evidence that this second grace was them giving to him, not uh, or, or to supporting at least the mission of going to Judea with this collection for the poor saints uh, amongst the, the church in Jerusalem there. So he, he planned to take a Corinthian delegation possibly, but in any case, this didn't really happen uh, Denise, do you want to look up Acts 22 through 4? Acts 22 for, two through 4. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so Pater of Berea accompanied him to Asia also. Articus and Secondus of the Thessalonicas and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychius and Trophimus of Asia. We, uh, that's usually her. <laughs> yeah, that, at Dick's Bible study, Diane always gets souls, but now we're picking on you, Denise. <laughs> Give you the ones with all the hard names in there. Well, you did pretty good. You hung in there. Well, the point is that he ended up going back to Asia and not, not down to Corinth. And so that gave them some more ammunition uh, to attack him. You know, I think the bottom line on this is you've got to judge things according to what is a proper judgment, which is the truth of the Scripture and the type of fruits that the Bible says. Now, the key issue about Paul wasn't how articulate he was. Uh, it wasn't the circumstances where he, made, he made, was able to make his journey when he wanted to or not. It, the real issue was whether he had the right gospel. Okay, And since he preached the truth of the gospel and he carried himself with integrity, they had no reason to be rejecting him on the ground that some super apostles thought they were better than Paul. And, that, and that's what the big problem was. I think there's another 
confirmation in this whole concept, this whole passage here, that pragmatism is a very poor judge of the will of God. Because here, Paul is saying that what he wanted to do, and he wasn't able to, and if we think of that, what Paul's talking about here, wanting to and not being able to, and maybe he's limited, he's not very powerful spiritually, he didn't have the supernatural fortitude to carry it off, or something like that. Think about all the stories we've heard in the past, about somebody saying, well, this is the will of God because I got on the ship, the ship sailed, we flew, you know, all the different um, anecdotal proofs <laughs> that God is pushing them to Corinth or God is pushing them to some place uh, because of all these supernatural things that happen. Paul is here saying, I wanted to come. I have a message from God. I'm a real apostle. God birthed the church through me, and yet he was thwarted. But he doesn't take that as, as anything except just that he was thwarted. Right, but they take it as a sign he wasn't from God. They, they're thinking that other way. And so uh, the next article, we're going to publish, by the way, Thursday. We're going to do it at the new building. We're going to do a mailing. Uh, and that, the first article is just going to draw the boundaries of how God draws boundaries. It's that stuff we did over at St. Paul, you know, about the tent of meaning. Okay. This, and then the next article that we'll publish in February, I'm going to explore what the Lord willing. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> we don't even know if we'll be alive in February, right? Um, but uh, at least it's in my mind to do is that, um, if you believe that there's a secret personal will of God that you have to have by revelation uh, that, that covers your future life, I have been thinking about this for some months now, and I don't think there's any possible way of knowing what that is or putting a test to that other than a pragmatic one. A prag- pragmatism is you test things by their outcome. Okay. So I was discussing this with some people that very much believe in this third will of God or this personal will of God or hidden, will of God. hidden yet, whatever you want to call it. It's some will of God that you don't know, but it's his blueprint for the rest of your life, and you have to get that information or you're going to fail. So I was debating with some people that believe that, and, and so I challenged them about a pragmatic test of truth. Because pragmatic test of truth says whatever works is true, but we know that that, that fails. That just doesn't work. Uh, uh, William James, American psychologist and philosopher, wrote a book called Pragmatism over 100 years ago, and a book which I read. But he was refuted just in the philosophical world. The pragmatic test for truth just doesn't work, quote, unquote. <laughs> in other words, it's, it's not capable of being correct. And I said, for example, uh, let's just say you're a young man and you're in Bible college because I was teaching some Bible college type students. And in a Bible college, there's several young ladies who would be good Christian wives. They, you know, they love the Lord and they want to serve God. And you're a young man, you're single. Um, you could ask one of them to marry you, perhaps. But do you need to pray and find out which one is God's will? So, uh, I'm I'm disagreeing with this. I'm saying you're free to marry in the Lord. Make your choice and then live with it. (laughs) Some of the husbands and wives are going to look at each other here. You're living with your choice. Now, I I told these students, and and so they were just gathered around asking about this. I said, now, 
What if you did that, okay, and you married someone that you believed was the one God wanted you to marry, and three years later she gets a chronic debilitating illness and becomes someone who has to be cared for for the rest of her life. And it becomes a major burden on you to care for her, and it makes it harder to carry out your ministry. Would you say that that was proof that you married the wrong person? And they said, no, I wouldn't. So I said, well, then what is proof? If, In other words, if how it works out doesn't prove it. If it goes good, that doesn't mean necessarily it was the right one. If it goes bad, it doesn't mean necessarily it's the wrong one. How do you ever know that it was the right one? By your, uh, what test of truth is there in this? And they couldn't think of any. I said, well, so you have this secret will of God and you have to learn it. And you think you'll learn it, so you make your decision based on this revelation you got from God. And you have no way of knowing after the fact whether it was ever the right one anyhow. I said, the only test you're going to have is a pragmatic one. And if you reject a pragmatic one, you have no test. So if you have no test, you have no way of knowing it ever really was right. So you might as well give up the whole idea to start with and just make your decision and trust God's providence that it was the right one. Lost my argument. Yes, Ryan. <laughs> the, for all Christians, the, the only will of God is to just love Him and spread the gospel. So I don't understand what other people are thinking of what could possibly be secret will. Well, it, it, it's a very prominent idea, though. It's the idea that maybe God wants me to be in Chicago instead of Minneapolis. And so then you have to if pray. You're in Chicago and you're spreading the gospel, then... Yeah. I, I remember a pastor that actually helped me because I was believing, and I don't know what... I think that the way it worked in, in my past, when I was in, at, like when I was at North Central Bible College, was that we sort of thought that it only went for the big things. In other words... God might tell you who to marry and where to go preach, but we didn't assume he's going to tell you what car to buy. Okay? But I remember what, I was trying to be hyper-pious. I had, early in my life, I was going to be one of these piet, pietists. I, uh, and it was, it was a pitfall that almost destroyed my life, and God was good to me to save me from that. But if I went, when I was at Bible college, somebody says I'd pray 10 hours a, a week, I'd say, well, then I've got to do 15, so I'm better than you. And you can see how silly that is, and it's kind of a trap that I was going to be the most spiritual person in Bible college. But while I was in that stupid thinking mode, um, remember Ray Corlew, the pastor that performed our wedding ceremony, uh, and Paul Green, the, the evangelist that led Diane's brother to the Lord, and I, and I think your dad decided to go golfing. Well, I had thought, see, I was a really avid golfer, and when I went up to Bible college, I had thought God told me not to golf. Okay? Because I was going by these voices that I was hearing. And so I came up here and I, 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 I didn't golf. And I went back and those guys said, let's go golfing. We want to go over to center or whatever this town and we want to go golfing. So I agreed. And so, and I hadn't golfed in like a year. So we went to this golf course, and they just wanted to have fun. And I kept hitting my ball into the cornfield. Okay. And uh, that's where they go in Iowa if you don't hit them right. <laughs> and uh, we kept going in the cornfield, and, and we, I was just kind of not doing so good. I was mad, and I was wanting to be good like I used to be, and I hadn't practiced in a year. And we got in a car on the way back, and I said something like, 
Well, I wasn't listening to God. I shouldn't have gone golfing. And this, uh, it was Paul Green. He turned around and he says, don't you talk like that. I don't want you talking like that. He says, I'll tell you what God's will for you is to walk in a spirit. You, no, don't, don't worry about whether you golf or not. And he saw me talking hyper-pious. And this guy was kind of like that himself. But he rebuked me for thinking God told me I wasn't supposed to golf. And um, I was just blaming uh, my spiritual condition for why I was hitting the golf ball in the cornfield. <laughs> and it was just lack of ineptitude was the real problem. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. I, I think there's a passage in John that says, First John, that says that there is no fear in love because fear involves punishment. I think that's what this concept is so debilitating. If I believe that I that my this third will, you know, if there is a hidden will of God and it's really truly God's will for me, and if I disobey this hidden will, I'm supposed to know it, and therefore if I disobey it, I'm sinning, and if I sin then there's a fear between me and God because I put myself in enmity you know, as an adversary of what God's will is. And that's a good thing to have God be an adversary or consider him an adversary when you willingly sin. But if it's not truly sin because I have liberty, then you have fear. Then I have fear, and as I go through life and experience afflictions, not only do I have the affliction, but I have a guilt that this affliction has come on me because I've disobeyed God, and then you wonder, well, where did I disobey God? I had this, this very strong ingrained in me when I was growing up through high school, and I went to a very charismatic college, and it was ingrained in me there, and life was good, therefore God was happy with me. And when I came out of college, life got very bad, and the most debilitating thing about that was that I felt God was unhappy, so I repented of every sin I ever did. And lots of them I didn't do, trying to get back to where it was going well. But it wasn't the issue. <coughs> you couldn't get out of your guilt. No, I couldn't get out of the affliction. Well, you, you know I, what? I, I tied affliction to that with some concept that if I obeyed God's hidden will, my life would go well. Right. Because you see that in the children of Israel at the time of the judges, they obeyed, they were prospered, they disobeyed, they weren't. But that isn't what the, that economy that 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 government doesn't exist anymore. No. Now we have good people dying, evil people getting wealthy, and we cry out and lament because it's not right until the millennium. So we pray for the justice. Uh, I was thinking of another one um, on this regard. The passage in James, and I don't know, I haven't finished the book yet, uh, Brian, that we're reading. But I was thinking about the passage where it says, "If you lack wisdom, let ask of God, who gives to all men liberally." And it says, and he will not abrade or he will not uh, chide you for, for, uh, for lacking it. So I wonder if that would be pertinent to this discussion. Yeah, another, yeah, exactly. In other words, when you confess your lack of wisdom to God, God's not going to say, well, you dummy, you should have known better. Okay. Uh, but I'm thinking that when you ask God for wisdom, what you, you, don't, you don't get revelations. You get character qualities that help you make decisions. Um, it's sort of like when you pray for patience. If you look at James in the same context, the trying, what does it say? Yeah, the, the trials and troubles give you patience, right? So how do you gain wisdom? But yeah, but yeah, trials and troubles give you wisdom as well as patience. Okay, and so I don't think the passage is talking about gaining 
supernatural revelations about things that God hasn't revealed in Scripture, but is gaining wisdom that will apply to all of life. And, and that you ask God for it is a good thing because you're showing your dependency on God and showing that you don't know. Yes, well, Brian. Keith and I had talked about this on the phone a couple of weeks ago and that it's still the same sinful desire that was that happened in the Garden of Eden. We're still wanting to eat of that tree of knowledge. We still want to have that type of knowledge. We want to have that insight. And some of it is legitimate. I get emails from, I think, really well-meaning Christians wanting to know, you know, what is what should my mission be as a Christian? You know, how do I, how can I best serve the Lord? And so there again, even in, even that's a legitimate desire, they still want some indication of direction going forward. And the, the uh, advice in this book is essentially, you know what you do? Go to church, meet people, talk to people, read his word. And in that atmosphere, you may find your way, but it's not going to be revealed to you by any method that you divine. Exactly, because that's divination. And, by, and what you gain by, and I agree with the guy that wrote this book, uh, what you gain by going to church, fellowshipping around the means of grace, the Word of God, fellowship, prayer, things that Ryan and I are always reinforcing that that's how God works, what you gain is character qualities. You gain friends that love Jesus, that will be there for you when things are tough. And you gain a situation where you learn how to live a Christian life. And, and, to, and that's how you, you gain your wisdom. And from building this biblical worldview, a person makes wise, informed decisions but they're still making them freely. They're not divining a secret revelation. Does that make sense? And I think that the concept, I believe, if I claim that verse, you know how many times, if anyone asks for wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives relief to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. But he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. But here you're supposed to have this faith. And the way we interpreted it, at where I was coming from, if I prayed and I really believed, God would give me these revelations. And the whole concept is debilitating and damaging because instead of seeking what God has revealed in Christ and his word, Jesus come in the flesh, written down in black and white, and going forward, confident that God was leading me, that the Holy Spirit is in fact living in me, as I walk forward, he is in fact accomplishing his will. I had say I was spirit-focused, but my concept of the Holy Spirit was a, was a, a much smaller. He was a, a Jiminy Cricket, someone had said earlier, the Jiminy Cricket Holy Spirit that sat on your shoulder and whispered what was happening if you had your ear tuned to him. And that's a much smaller Holy Spirit, the one that actually does dwell in you, does live in you, gives you desires themselves, feeds you through his word, and as you walk through life, the Holy Spirit, who's so massively and transcendent and broad and all-encompassing and all-knowing, does guide you. Amen. It's a totally different flip-flop, because in one sense you're focused on the Spirit, but he's this big. <coughs> and the other, you're focused on Christ, and the Holy Spirit is everywhere. And he carries us. Yes, uh, Cora Lee? Yes, you did touch on, on the point I wanted to make. Um, all that's been said, I agree with. But I think of God 
like you said, he's so broad, so transcendent. Um, we can't limit him, really. And mm -hmm. doesn't he inspire the poet? Doesn't he inspire the musician? Doesn't he inspire, in fact, the mother who's looking for wisdom on the spot, spontaneous wisdom when she's raising her child? Lord, how do I handle this question? That kind of thing. So I do believe that God also, um, yes, he's primarily found in his word and um, through Christians but, and through our experience in trials that teach us uh, wisdom. But he is also, um, there's a verse that comes to mind that he's a, I can't think, it's in the, in the Psalms where he um, is a present help in times of trouble. Yeah, very present. He's very present. And, and if you don't have your Bible... He's still present in spirit, <laughs> and he's there to provide at the moment that we need yeah, inspiration. He, yeah. and, and he does inspire, you know, because he's a creative God, and he's created us in his image. So for those of us who are uh, wanting to create, I do totally believe that he inspires as a present reality. Well, it's part of, a, it's part of providence and as part of his work in his people that we make our decisions and we do our work heartily is unto the Lord. And God is at work in even our decisions. Right. I'm sure that he's more involved than we realize. Absolutely. So but, but what we're refuting is the idea that you have to get some secret information to go forward. That's, that's what we're standing against. Yes. Um, I'd like to say in, in Ecclesiastes 1.18 it says, uh, Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. <laughs> I think there's a lot of what Keith was saying there. You're going to gain a lot of character when you uh, go through a lot of pain and grief and, and to gain wisdom and understanding. Yeah. Well, I just looked at that the other day, and it came to me that asking God for wisdom is very much like asking him for patience. <laughs> so, in other words, uh, you know, you might have some trials so that you have to gain wisdom through your trials. But that's the way life is. That's why uh, a lot of, if you look at, well, even just basically any culture, if you look at a gathering of the people that are supposed to be the people that know how to deal with bad, really bad problems, like they had this commission of people to help figure out what's going on in Iraq. But if you, if you saw the picture of them, there's, there's gray hair and bald heads all around. <laughs> and uh, so even in our, uh, our culture, we're looking, if we think that we're looking for somebody with wisdom, we, have, we get all these people have been around for 50, 60, 70, 80 years because they've experienced these sort of things and hopefully they learn some wisdom. Now, sometimes if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you never really learn God's wisdom. But for the Christian who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you indeed gain wisdom when you ask God. Yes. Doesn't it also, doesn't it also uh, kind of show a warped sense of who God is? If I mean, if, we're, if we think God is kind of dangling something over us that we may or may not ever discover, but we're, we're supposed to, but he might hide it from us, and we may never find out what that will is. Yeah. What is that saying about the character of God? Well, what it, they, it gets back to works. It's works again. Absolutely. You have to work and work and work to find out what the right answer is. Yeah, and it's kind of a it works righteousness, because if you listen to these guys teaching that, they all claim that they have the superior status because they're better at gaining this information. But then what makes that different than what Brian was doing before he became a Christian? Why do you go to the person that has a spirit guide? Because they're better at gaining the information. 
So now we just take that and put it into the Christian world, and we have these prophets that are better than gaining that. And then so this perfect will of God's dangling out there, like Diane said, and you don't find it, and so you're you're banging your head against the wall because you can't know God's will. But if you were just more spiritual, you'd know what it is, and you wouldn't have all these problems. That is kind of a warped view of God, I believe. Well, I would go farther to say that that concept is anti-God, and that concept is of a God that Moses didn't show us, talking about in Deuteronomy 13. If somebody comes and tells you that, and a prophet comes, and dreamer of dreams, and says, Here's, let me lead you after a God you don't know, even if it comes true, he's lying to you because God is testing you. The God that defines his values, God's values, God's will, God's provision, God's expression of himself to us, is in that book, and ultimately was in Christ, and was given to men who saw Christ as a man, and heard with real ears, touched them with real hands. And somebody that tells you, I know a God's will that's beyond that, is bringing to you a different God. They're talking about a different God. They're showing you a different God. And if you follow that different God to where he leads, you will be damned. It's a bad thing, this whole concept, because it will lead you every single time away from the God that Moses and Christ revealed. Okay. That's why we're starting this article by defining those boundaries, uh, how God reveals them. Let's look at one more verse here. 2 Corinthians 1.17, because it talks about this vacillating. Okay. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Rhetorical question, expected response, no. Or, that which I purpose, I do purpose according to the flesh, that is with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time. In other words, Paul would be this vacillating, uh, double-minded man who uh, is unreliable and who planned a visit, who did not visit, so he is being charged as being a vacillating one. And according to his opponents, that showed that he's not very reliable. What kind of apostle can't even make up his mind whether they come to Corinth or not? All right. So they were demanding more of him. They were demanding that he would, uh, if he said, if he did, if he said he's going to come and he didn't come, approve their flaws in Paul. That's what they're saying. And he is, uh, saying he is not like that. Yes, yes, and no, no. So he was sincere when he said he planned on visited, but he did say if the Lord wills, and it turns out that God had other things providentially as life unfolded. So that's why in James it says you should say if the Lord wills, we'll do this business and make a profit. And uh, that's something just to kind of get in your mind. Because, you know, we all have our plans. And there's nothing wrong with planning. You can plan to have a great big business that makes a whole lot of money. But you might not do so. <laughs> it may not happen. Okay? And so when you put God's imprimatur on it, how do you say that? Imprimatur? You know, signal ring of, of approval, you know? When you put God's stamp of approval on your plan for a big business that makes a lot of money, then the name of God is attached to your business. All right? And if the business fails, it tarnishes the name of God. If you, if you go out telling everybody, God told me to go in his business and God told me I'm going to get rich, and then the business fails, now the word of God failed. Yeah. And so, uh, because we don't want to dishonor the name of God, 
we don't attach His name to things that may not be true. That are just things of this world that, we're, that are plans in the mind of man. Okay, so that's why in James it says, you should have said, if the Lord wills. There's nothing wrong with the business, nothing wrong with a plan, and there's nothing wrong to hope for profit in your business. If you, if you had no hope for profit in a business, nobody would ever have a business. And we'd have nowhere to go buy food. Right? Now, but you should say, if the Lord wills, because it could be it doesn't work out. And then you do something else. All we have is the promise that God will take care of us because He takes care of the sparrows. And shall not God also take care of you, all ye of little faith? And if you have food and clothing, be content in that. So I have a promise that God will take care of me, but I don't have a promise that I'm going to be the pastor of a mega church. There's no, there's no promise like that in, to be found. Okay? Now, I, I'm just trying to help you and apply these things to your marriage, to your life, to your decision making, to raising your kids, and concentrate on character qualities, wisdom, compassion, the virtues that the Bible say to be true, and you won't have any uh, fault finding from God. In other words, uh, there's no stick beating you because you decided to do certain things a certain way using the best wisdom that God gives you. Because in this world, a lot of things don't go so good. <laughs> how, many, how many of you have experienced that? Okay, this, more, this is, uh, by the way, you know, today's the December 24th, so tonight's Christmas Eve. We have a little service at 5 o'clock. But before that, 10.30 this morning, I'm going to preach from Luke chapter 2, Verses 1 through 20, the, the, the Christmas story in Luke. And boy, did I have fun studying that this week. So hopefully we'll have some things to share from the Scripture. So God bless you, and uh, we'll see you upstairs at 1030.